at this point consider Heritage like a second church family. I've been here so many times for the Fight of Faith Conference just to visit the stewards and then to hear uh, Brother Bradley preach at the meeting that, that he has been doing in the month of February for years. Um, I always kind of laugh when I get introduced as being from Pearl, Mississippi, because our church is in Pearl, Mississippi, but I actually live in Brandon, Mississippi. Most people from Brandon would be, would be really, ooh, they don't want to be called from Pearl because they're arch uh, enemies in high school football, but I was homeschooled, so I don't really have a dog in that fight. So I can be from Pearl, Mississippi, um, but it's a, a joy to be with you all to briefly talk to you this afternoon. I want to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and use the verses 9 and 10 for the text. So if you have your Bible, I want to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. The context here is the Apostle Paul talking to a somewhat healthy church, which is kind of abnormal for the New Testament because there's many times when he's talking to churches that are experiencing heresies coming in, like in the book of Galatians. Those people were experiencing false teaching that was saying, turn back to works for justification. Uh, in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul has to confront some false teaching that you're saved just because you're a Jew, right? But in this book, Paul comes in and he's saying in verses 2 and 3 that he is giving thanks for these people, always making mention of them in his prayers, remembering something about this church that made him thankful. He said he remembered their work of faith and their labor of love and their patience of hope in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so their work of faith, their labor is love is something that Paul remembers and it gives him joy in his heart and he gives thanks for that. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because Galatians 5, 6 says that the, the faith that God gives us as his gift works itself out by love to others. And this is what Paul is seeing in the church. But, I mean, something happened here. These people were a bunch of heathen, idol-worshiping idolaters, just like the majority of their society. And then something transformative happened in their life. And that's what he's remembering. He's remembering this transformative experience that happened in the lives of the Thessalonican Christians. And because of this transformative experience, he will be able to testify in verses 9 and 10, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from wrath to come. And so I want to take from my title, Turning to God from Idols, because that's just what these people did. They were heathen, idol-worshiping idolaters who were in the dark, and then they turned to God from idols to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to wait for his son from heaven. And these two verses are just slam-packed with true Bible doctrine. You can't say that doctrine doesn't matter, because the reason why we believe certain doctrines and not others is because certain doctrines are taught in the Bible. And these two verses are slam-packed with doctrine. Turning to God from idols, that's true repentance. Because when you truly repent, you change what you do. These people changed what they did. They turned to God from idols. And I got to be honest, what really made me think about this verse was when I was in India. Because in India, and I got to go to India this summer, some of you all saw the pictures of a few last Wednesday night, but um, there's a lot of idols over there. 
Our plane landed in Bengaluru, which is one of the biggest cities in that country. We were going down the Indian equivalent to an interstate, and one of the first things I saw was this massive, like 60-foot-tall idol. And the first thing I thought was honestly just judgment. Like, what is wrong with you people? Like, how could you all worship this? It looks like a woman, but it has a snake's head. Like, why would you all worship this? But then I start to think, well, man, we're, we're idolatrous in America too, but maybe we're just a little better at coding our idolatry and wealth. You know, maybe God's actually less forgiving of us because we're not as honest with our idolatry. For us, it's just high school football or my job or, or being busy. I think I have an idol of being busy at times, being productive, because that's the American way. At least these people are just honest. No, God, we don't worship you. We worship this idol, and we go to it to deliver on our hopes for joy and happiness. So it's important for us in America every day to turn to God from idols. So I want to look at these two verses under three headings. First, the gospel received. Where do we see that? We see it in verse 9, the first half of that verse. It says, the manner of entering in that the apostle Paul had with these people. So what is a manner of entering in? Well, it's the way in which you're received. For example, when we went to India, we didn't know what type of manner of entering in we were going to have. We walked up to that customs desk, and Brother Isaac was coaching me the entire time. Don't mess up here. They can send you back to America right now if you mess up. So I didn't know what manner of entering in. I didn't know how I was going to be received because I didn't know the manner of entering in that I was going to have when I got to India. In contrast, when I got back to the United States, I felt pretty good about having a good manner of entering in. I was like, I'm a United States citizen. I'm going to pull out my passport. I'm going to show them Secretary of State, ask this person pass without hindrance, let me back in. Good manner of entering in. In the same way, the gospel had a good manner of entering in when it came to a certain group of people. Who was, what was that group? Well, look with me in verse 4. It was the elect. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. The Apostle Paul says, Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God, because our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in the power of the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, and ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So the gospel had a good manner of entering in when it came to the elect, and God sent it to the elect. Before I went to India, I was a disciple now leader for a church back in Mississippi, and I developed a friendship with a, a, a young guy about 19 years old. And we started talking about the Bible, and he asked me about election, and I said that I believed in it. And I pointed him to this text, among others, because I think this is just such a... a a text that's just so clearly teaching the doctrine of election, you know, pretty much as clear as you're going to get. And he asked me, he said, well, John, if you believe in election, why preach the gospel? And there's multiple ways that I you know, could have responded to that or that you could respond to that. But I want to look at three ways that I think are helpful to respond to that question, because you'll get the question, you believe in election. And then, you know, you could just respond by saying, look, look, dude, the, Bi the Bible teaches this. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. It says, knowing your election of God, because when the gospel came, you all heard it, and you responded with much assurance and in the power of the Holy Ghost. But there's other ways you could respond. Um, the first way is there's no reason to preach the gospel if God did not elect certain people. Because in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, the apostle talks about man in his natural state. 
And he says in Romans chapter 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Going on to verse 11, he says there's none that are understanding God, and there's no one that seeks after God. Natural man, natural heart, hardened heart, no one's seeking, no one's understanding, no one's following the Lord. But look what happens when the gospel comes to the elect in verse 6 of our text, or of our home chapter. Ye became followers of us and of the Lord. That's crazy. These people became followers of the Lord when Paul said in Romans 3.11 that there was no one that was seeking after God. These people are. Why? Because of the election. Because of election, when the gospel came to these people, it came in the power of the Holy Ghost, and it came with much assurance. And then what? They became followers of the Lord. And it started with election. So there's no reason to preach the gospel if God didn't elect certain people because the, God, the election is what makes the difference between those who never seek after the Lord and those that do seek after the Lord. And when did they seek after him? When the gospel came. The second way you could respond is the whole point of election is for people to believe the gospel and become followers of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I know y'all probably already know this verse, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Why are you giving thanks, Paul? Because God, from the beginning, chose you to salvation. So he didn't save you from the beginning. He chose you from the beginning to be saved. How is he going to save these people? Through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. For this purpose, God called the, God called the Thessalonican church by the gospel. And so the whole point of this choice that was made from the beginning was for these people to be saved through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. So the whole point of election is for people to believe the gospel. So we ought to preach the gospel because when it comes to the elect, it's going to come in God's timing in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance and with great power. And then the third way I think that is helpful to respond is it's much more encouraging to preach the gospel when you know that there's people who were chosen from the beginning to hear it, to respond to it, and to be saved by it. I mean, if you don't believe in election, then you're just going out like, I hope this works. But if you believe in the election, you believe that there was people who were chosen from the beginning to be saved. And God's going to accomplish his salvation through sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And this is just the purpose of why he called people by the gospel. So the apostle Paul knew. He's just standing out there preaching, and he's just looking at people who are like staring at him like, when is lunch? And then suddenly something happens. The Holy Ghost comes down, and they believe, and they became followers of the Lord. Whereas without the election, no one seeks after God. So Romans 3.11 says. So it's far more encouraging to preach when you know there's people that were chosen from the beginning to be saved by the gospel. So first we see the gospel received. It was a good manner of entering in when the gospel came to the elect. And then we see the gospel applied under our second heading. The gospel applied. These people turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And now this, that, it was that phrase right there that just kept coming back to my mind when I was at India. Because there are just idols everywhere. You know, I mentioned that first big idol that I saw in, in Bangalore, but every little town you would go to, they would be 
honestly impoverished. There would be people living in huts. They would barely have any food. The clothes would be all ripped up, but there'd be a beautiful idol in the middle of that town that must have cost a lot of money, a lot of Indian rupees. And just like Brother Mike was saying this morning, it's a vending machine religion. That was Brother Guna's words. It is a vending machine religion. You know, I think the, the prosperity gospel is a false uh, gospel in America that treats, you know, Christianity like a vending machine, which it's not. But Hinduism is a vending machine. That's what Brother Guna told us. The whole point of that religion is I come to this idol, I'm going to bring it my rose petals, my incense, my whatever. I'm going to lay it, at the, literally lay it at the feet of this idol. Whatever, whatever physical thing I'm bringing, I'm going to lay it at the feet of this idol that's in the middle of my village, and I'm going to expect it to give me something in return. And if I don't get it, I'm mad. Because this is the whole point of why I'm doing this. This is the whole point of why I'm a Hindu. According to Brother Guna, I'm not a Hinduism expert, but he's, he is, and he said the whole point of their religion is you bring your stuff to the idol, and you expect the idol to deliver, just like a vending machine. That's what I thought about it. Stick that dollar in the vending machine. If it gets jammed up and doesn't give you a Dr. Pepper at a payday bar, then I'm upset. Because the whole reason of why I even went to this vending machine was to get a Dr. Pepper and a payday bar. That's, that's what Hinduism is. And that's what these people were. They were idol-worshiping, idolatrous heathens. And then the gospel came. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. If, 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 you're, if you're an idolater, you're not, you're not a servant. You're expecting to be served by the idol. But these people, when they, when they turned to God, when they were converted, when they repented, they became servants of the living and true God. They weren't draw, trying to be served anymore by some dumb idol. They became servants of the living and true God. And so... For us, maybe you've already turned to the Lord, but during the week, there's just a lot of idols that pull you away from God. Maybe it's cars. Maybe it's your dream house. Maybe it's hunting. In Mississippi, it's hunting. I feel like Alabama's not that much different from Mississippi in that way, but maybe it, for me, it's not. For me, it's other things, like maybe golf or maybe um, you know, Mississippi State football. Yeah. These are idols. Because if we, we, we go to the football game and we say, look, if we don't win this game, I'm unhappy. I'm going to not talk to the Ole Miss fans tomorrow at church because I know they're going to make me unhappy. Because I'm, I'm expecting this college football championship to deliver on my expectation for joy. I'm expecting this, you know, brand new car to make me happy. I'm expecting that four-point buck, eight-point buck when I shoot it. I'm finally going to feel happy and good, and I'm finally going to feel okay. So in America, we're like, oh, it's not an idol, it's just hunting. It's not an idol, it's just football. It's not an idol, it's just this multi-thousand-dollar car, multi-million-dollar house that I've always wanted. So we know how to coat our idols in wealth, and so then we don't feel as bad. So that's what I thought. Maybe God's less forgiving of us because at least they're honest with their idolatry. Like, God, no. I mean, down here in the South, we'd say, oh, no, I worship God. But, you know, hunting, football, houses, God had those things too, or I'm not happy. In India, they can't afford hunting and, and houses and football. So they just build this big, massive idol in the middle of their city and they worship that. 
but maybe we're just as to be blamed as they are if we are taken away with idols. Um, for me, I do think it's, I, 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 idolatry can take the form of being busy. In America, we're just so busy that we can't slow down for two seconds and worship God and think about his blessings. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 5. Thus saith the Lord, or 2 through 5, rather. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of the heathen. For the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cuts a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of workmen. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but they speak not. And they must be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of these idols because they cannot do good and neither can they do evil. They can't do good or evil. They're just dumb idols. You all are taking silver and gold. Indians were doing this. And you're covering it. In, in, in silver and gold, you know, in America, we cover our idols in, in football and golf and uh, big houses. You're covering it in these material things. You're fastening it with nails and hammers that it, so that it stands up straight. But look, it, 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 can't, it can't go. You have to bear it on an ox cart if you want to take it anywhere. This thing can't do good or it can't do evil. It's just an idol. It's your hearts that are evil. It's the heart of man that's corrupt. And so this corrupt heart turns to idols because this corrupt heart wants to get what it desires out of the idol. We want to be served by the idol. Whereas when these people turned to the living and true God, they became servants of him and of each other because their faith worked itself out by a labor of love and patience of hope to their neighbor. And this is what Galatians 5, 6 happens. When, the, when, when we turn to God from idols, that faith works itself out by love in our relationships. And that's what happened to these people when they turned to God from idols. And so Jeremiah 11, 2 through 5, again, just talking about the, the vanity. The, the religions of those people, those heathen nations that Jeremiah talked about, they were vain because they're never going to... The, the, the idol, insert your idol here, it's never going to fulfill you. It's never going to fulfill you. That vending machine is going to get clogged every time because only God can give you true joy and true happiness. And that's what happened to these people. And when they turned to God from idols, they truly changed what they did. That was true repentance because they changed what they did. If you haven't changed what you do, then you haven't repented. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says that godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. The ESV says without regret. So, True repentance that leads to salvation doesn't have regret that says, you know what, I'm turning back because God's just not doing it for me. I'm just not, it's not what I expected. I regret this repentance. That's not true repentance. True repentance leads to salvation without regret because we turn from what we used to do. Paul says, but the sorrow of this world works death. Why? Because the sorrow of this world regrets and it's just sorry I got caught. And then when, the, when I, when I am, am not experiencing the prosperity, when, I, when I'm not reaping the joys of that prosperity gospel, what happens? I regret, and I turn back, and that works death. Because we saw the end of the pathway for those people in Psalm 73 that were going down a pathway of destruction. The end of that pathway for them was eternal destruction and death. And so we need to keep turning to God every single day. And as Brother Mike preached to us, 
worship with other believers is one of the things that God uses to keep us turning back to Him. And it's one of the things that God uses to bring about repentance without regret. But when these people repented, we see some things happen to them, right? Affliction. Look with me in verse 6. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Ghost. That's crazy. That's upside down. Why are you joyful when you're being afflicted? And let me tell you, that was my experience in India. Those people were afflicted just objectively. I mean, there's, there's tr- truly, if you, have to be, if you become a Christian, you're supposed to sign papers where you have to sign away rights. I can't get certain jobs. I can't have certain social, social benefits because I'm a Christian. Your family oftentimes is going to... We, we talk to people whose parents, I mean, turn their backs on them, whose husbands or wives turn their back on them and just cut them off. They were afflicted by their families and by the government. But I can say honestly up here that the people over there, the Christians over there, as a general principle, were more joyful than the Christians over here. And they were way more afflicted. So it's as if affliction is a joy producer because I think God gives special joy when people are experiencing special afflictions. And that's what was happening to these people. They, were, they received the word and they became followers of the Lord. And they turned to God from idols, but affliction was there too. But God produced joy in the affliction. And it's almost as if the affliction was a joy producer because God gave special power and special assurance and special hope by the Holy Ghost. So we see affliction, but we also see joy. Um, but First Peter 4.12 says, don't think it's strange. Don't think that it's strange when these afflictions come on you. Don't think it's strange when you enter into the fiery trial. Because the fiery trial is just something that comes along when you turn to the Lord. These people turn to the Lord and all in the same package was affliction. So don't think it's strange. And be comforted and take joy in the fact that God even uses trials. First Peter chapter 1 around the ninth verse. God uses trials to strengthen our faith and to refine our faith like gold is refined. And so that's why affliction actually can mean joy for us. Because even afflictions are working together for our good to strengthen our faith. And God gives special joy, I believe, when there's special affliction. Because I saw that in India. I can't think of, or can't help but think of the words of the hymn writer, Joseph Hart, when he said, the strange, how strange is the course that a Christian must steer, how perplexed is the path he must tread. The hope of his happiness rises from fear, and his life he receives from the dead. It's upside down. The life we live is upside down. Even to the extent that affliction produces joy. That's, that's not what our culture tells us. No, comfort produces joy. No. The Bible says affliction. You receive the word of much affliction with, all in one package, joy of the Holy Ghost. And the afflictions, the trials actually build up our faith. And God is using that in part to hold on to us in the preservation of the saints. So, these people then became good examples. Listen to verse 7. You all became good in samples or examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Why were you a good example? Because from you was sounding out the word. 
It wasn't just because you're so good. No, it's because you were sounding out the word of the Lord. You were a good example because the word of God was, as it were, just falling out of you. You were just, you were just speaking it because it was the word that's bringing you joy in the midst of your afflictions, and it was the word that called you out of his darkness and into his marvelous light. And so now you're just sounding out. It's just like when someone steps on your foot, you can't help but sound out. Maybe that wasn't a very good example, but it was a sounding out nonetheless because they were just so joyful. And they're like, how, how is it that we're so afflicted but yet so joyful? Because of the word and because of the hope that God gives. We saw several people in India that were good examples. One lady especially, I don't know if Brother Gunnar talked about a lady named Sister Joyce. So Sister Joyce, uh, I, I can't remember or pronounce her last name, but she was a, uh, a director of one of their child care centers uh, in a little town called Angiam. And for years, she was physically abused by her husband for being a Christian. He would punch her, he would slap her, and he would talk down to her because she was a Christian and because she wanted to go to church. But after years of her being afflicted and suffering for the gospel's sake by her own husband, and she stayed with him all those years, God opened his heart and God converted him and God used his wife, Joyce, to convert him. And now her hus- husband is a Christian and he joined the Primitive Baptist Church there in, um, there in Angiam. And I, and I couldn't help but think about 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation or way of life of the wife. Sister Joyce was a good example, and God used her to convert her husband because she stuck it out. And she was a good example. So whenever she turned to God from idols... She was afflicted, but she had joy, but she was a good example. And God used her to convert her husband. And now he is experiencing salvation. And now he is turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God as well. And then lastly, I want to look at the gospel summarized. The gospel summarized in verse 10. We're now waiting for his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us. From wrath come. How much truth can you fit into one verse? I mean, first we see we're waiting for his son. So it's not some just good teacher or, or moral dude. We're waiting for the son of God, for the sonship of Christ. We're waiting for Jesus Christ from heaven. It's not just a you know, steak dinner that we have to look forward to. It's heaven. We're waiting for the son of God from heaven. And so for these people now that they've turned to God from idols to serve him, Earth's just a waiting room. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor's office, you're not expecting for that waiting room to deliver on your expectation. It's like, I mean, I hope there's some comfortable seats, but I don't really care what happens in the waiting room. I'm waiting to see the doctor. So now these people, that's what their life is like. It's just a, we're just waiting. We're just, we're just strangers passing through this land, and we're waiting for Jesus Christ from heaven, whom God raised from the dead. Jesus was resurrected. He wasn't some just, just good teacher because, because he has his power over death. He was raised from the He defeated death. And that's so important. We're waiting for Jesus Christ from heaven. Our citizenship, Philippians 3, 21 to say, is in heaven. And we're awaiting a Savior. We're not awaiting just anybody. We're awaiting our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
the parallel verse there in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. We're waiting for Jesus Christ. From Our citizenship is not here in America. You may be a U.S. citizen. I am too glad to be one. But our true citizenship is in heaven. And this is just a waiting room. And we're waiting for Jesus from heaven to come. And, and, and this Jesus was raised from the dead. And this is not a sermon about the resurrection, but that's so important. I mean, Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was raised again for our justification. So if Jesus is not raised again, you aren't justified. And not a sermon about justification either, but if you, if you aren't justified, you're not going to heaven. Because if you aren't justified, you have not had Christ's righteousness imputed to your account. And you're standing in your own righteousness, which is as filthy rags. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered for our offenses, and he was raised again for our justification. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, If Christ be not raised, your faith, for which you're justified by it, is vain, and you're yet in your sins. That's true if Christ is not raised, but he is raised. That's what our text says. He says that he was raised from the dead. Who was this? It was, just in case there was any doubt, even Jesus. It was Jesus who was raised from the dead, and he is the one that has delivered us from wrath to come. Because God is righteous, he's going to have wrath on people that are wicked. It was when Asaph went to the house of God, he remembered something about the wicked that gave him a right view of his life. What was that? That God's wrath is abiding on these people, and their end is in slippery places, and they're going to wake up like it's a nightmare and be screaming from terror. Because... For the wicked, they are under the wrath of God. For those that have not turned to Jesus Christ by faith and believed on him, John, uh, John 3.36 says that the wrath of God is abiding on those people. But for, those, for all those who have turned to God from idols, the promise of Scripture is that you are delivered from wrath to come and you're justified. And Jesus was raised again for our justification. So keep turning to God from idols. Keep turning to Him in repentance and faith, and just know that even when afflictions come this week, God's going to produce joy. He's going to give you joy, and even that trial, God's going to use it to to hold on to you by faith, and He's going to give you joy in the trial. So turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Thank you for your kind attention. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just helping us to to, uh, come here today and, and have the health to worship with fellow believers. I thank you for the opportunity to preach out of 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10, and just help me as I go back to Mississippi and to my week, regular life in the week just to turn to you, turn from my idols that are much more maybe masked in wealth and, and um, honestly privileged than, than the idols in India, but help me to turn from my idols nonetheless and to serve you. Help us all to do that and to keep turning to you, and, and as a result of that, our, our faith in you would just work itself out by love and, and patience and uh, uh, that would, would manifest itself in our relationships with each other. Lead us and guard us, guide us and direct us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.